Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I do see in our discussions, the fact that both sanctions and military support to Ukraine do impact Russian war and Russian effort. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. Good to be back with you. And thanks to Sarah Wheaton and the team for hosting the podcast last week from the World Economic Forum in Davos. We hope you enjoyed those special bonus episodes. At the top of this episode, you just heard French President Emmanuel Macron responding to a question from me, shouted from the edge of a scrum of reporters, as he left a summit of EU leaders in Brussels earlier this week. I asked Macron whether he saw any sign that EU sanctions were having any impacts on Vladimir Putin. This is a big solidarity package towards Ukraine. This is how Ukraine did resist during the past, the past few weeks. First, thanks to the bravery, but because we, we sent this equipment and so on. And so because, yes, there is an, an economic impact on the Russian economy and the ability of Russia to finance this war. Sanctions were the big issue at the summit, where the leaders finally reached a late-night compromise to ban Russian oil imports after weeks of wrangling due to objections led by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. In the end, the leaders agreed to a ban, but with important exceptions for Hungary and some other EU members. I spoke to a couple of other EU leaders about how they saw the summit. Here's a succinct summary from Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. A successful summit in your yes, mind? Yes, And why? It was reasonably successful. <laughs> reasonably successful? Yes, yes, yes. Why only reasonably? We, we reached lots of objectives. Uh, we managed to have the uh, embargo on oil. Uh, we quite united on that. It was a difficult decision. Uh, some countries that are landlocked were given an exemption, but all this would account for less than 10% of the oil embargo. We managed to discuss the electricity market, a possibility of a price cap. The Commission will have a mandate to study this issue. We discussed defence and we discussed food security. So it was a good summit. How concerned are you about the food security? And here's Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallas. Prime Minister, a quick word for Politico. How do you feel? Was this a successful summit or did the Hungarian carve-outs mean it wasn't as 
impactful as you would have hoped? Well, considering that uh, I didn't think that we reached an agreement, uh, then I think it's a su- success. Uh, so compared to, I mean, we had two choices, either to have a compromise and an agreement or to have no agreement at all. So I think it's a, it's a success that we managed to agree on the oil embargo with conditions. And what comes next? Do you want to move to gas straight away? Um, I think uh, gas embargo is necessary, uh, but uh, it is very difficult. We see that every package is more difficult to agree because it also has impact on on, uh, European countries. And I don't think we are there or close uh, close, uh, yet. And do you think any of this has any impact on Vladimir Putin? I understand you feel you have to do it, but is it changing his behaviour? Is it having any impact on the war? it's having impact. Uh, otherwise, Putin wouldn't say to everybody, uh, you know, uh, lift the sanctions. I will do this, lift the sanctions. Uh, regarding the food security, for example, uh, he wouldn't mention this uh, if it wouldn't hurt. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. We'll bring in our podcast panel in a moment to get their assessments of the summit, what was achieved, who blinked and what battles lie ahead. And talking of battles, there was one last one on this package even after the summit. Hungary succeeded in getting Patriarch Kirill, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, removed from the overall package. And later in the podcast, we'll get into a fascinating story about how the EU was built. Not the one you usually hear about government leaders and treaties, but about lawyers across the continent who made the EU a legal reality. We'll talk to Tommaso Pavoni. He's a professor of law and politics and the author of a new book, The Ghostwriters, about those lawyers and the Europe they've built. I've got to say that, somewhat to my surprise, I'll admit, it's one of the most fascinating interviews we've done for this podcast. So do stick around for that. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So, a warm welcome to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello there. To Lily Beyer, our senior reporter here in Brussels. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And chief Brussels correspondent, also with us in the studio, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. So, let's get uh, stuck in first to the uh, summit, the one that uh, Lily and David and I were covering over the past couple of days, Monday and Tuesday of uh, this week. As uh, I mentioned in the intro, the big issue it turned out was a deal on uh, the next round of sanctions against Russia, the focus on a ban on Russian oil. It's a ban, but with some exemptions. So as demanded by Hungary and others, who their economy, of course, heavily dependent on Russian oil, they argued they couldn't easily replace that oil quickly. And so pipeline oil is exempt. And there are also some other exemptions. But the EU says that by the end of the year, thanks to this deal and an agreement by Poland and Germany, that they'll stop using pipeline oil anyway, that 90% of Russian oil imports will be stopped by the end of this year. So that was the deal in headline terms. Uh, Lily, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban led the resistance, if you like, led the opposition, the objections to this deal or the package as it was originally presented. How is he portraying this deal back home in Hungary? 
I think listeners already know that Viktor Orban loves a good fight. And if there's no fight, he's probably going to find one. Um, so he arrived at the summit saying that um, he's happy if there's an exemption for pipeline oil, but he wants an extra guarantee that if something happens, if there's an interruption to the supplies via pipeline to Hungary, that they would still be allowed to um, somehow get oil elsewhere. So he did get some extra wording negotiated into the conclusions, which in the end said that in case of sudden interruptions of supply, emergency measures will be introduced to ensure security of supply. And then he posted on Facebook very victoriously, basically telling uh, his voters that he got what he wanted. Was there anything that he didn't get here? You know, this this wrangling went on for weeks. We heard various versions of what could be a compromise. Was there anything that he was looking for there that he didn't get this time? I think that from his perspective, this is just one phase of a much broader fight. And I think that in some of the next phases, we will hear more about money and investments because what I heard in, in Hungary when I was there last week is that they really, really want money. They want EU money. They have no access to their recovery funds at the moment. So I think we can expect over the next weeks and months for Orban to once again come to Brussels and try to find ways to get cash. Right. And this goes back to the big rule of law fight. Uh, and in particular, the recovery fund cash is blocked for the moment because of concerns about corruption, right? That's the aspect there, right? Yes. So Hungary's recovery funding is blocked because um, the country does not have a sufficiently robust anti-corruption framework. There are widespread concerns about high-level corruption in the country. Okay. So in this particular case, he gets to kind of keep the oil, if you like, and that's an open-ended exemption. There's no deadline on it. I mean, there is meant to be an effort to you know, find other supplies, which would then let Hungary stop using pipeline oil from Russia. But at the moment, they have that exemption. So he got that, but he didn't get the money, if you like, this time. But as you say, Lily, he will no doubt be back looking for that uh, before too long. David, how do you assess how this all went down, how the, the deal was done? Because going into this summit wasn't clear if it would be done, if it would even be on the agenda. We had European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, last week saying, I don't think this will get done at the summit. It's all pretty technical. And then suddenly uh, the leaders took it on and in classic EU fashion, we got a, a late night deal. How did that happen? Well, we certainly saw the French presidency of the Council of the EU and the Council President Charles Michel, very close to uh, the French president himself, Emmanuel Macron, step in with an urgent push to make this deal happen. Obviously, their credibility on the line, the EU's credibility on the line in many ways. But let's be clear, this was outright extortion by Orban, and he won. And before we'd even left the summit hall, there were folks outraged because his longtime spokesman, Zoltan Kovac, was tweeting about how they would be able to maintain a cost-cutting program for consumers on energy prices. The rest of the EU is facing soaring energy costs. Lots of countries, especially in the Baltics, neighbors of, uh, of Hungary and uh, other countries, Poland, uh, Slovakia, everybody sacrificing in order to hold Russia to account and also dealing with rising inflation and how to control costs for their consumers. And here's Hungary boasting that, in fact, this was not about the security of supply so much as keeping prices lower for Hungarian consumers. A lot of unhappiness around that. Right. 
Um, but that one of the things that was striking, I think, for all of us kind of long-time uh, summit watchers is, of course, we're used to Angela Merkel being the centre of attention. We're used to her leading, at least in some sense, and being the person who, who does the deal. Now, there's a very open question about how wise some of those deals were. She certainly reached accommodations with Viktor Orban over the years, which in some ways set the pattern for what we're seeing now. But... We didn't see Olaf Scholz playing that role. How much trouble do you think he's having in assuming that leadership role, not just as Chancellor of Germany, but as really, you know, the leading European political figure? So I think there was actually a lot of expectation that Emmanuel Macron would be the one who would pick up the mantle of Merkel after she left. And I think, unfortunately, that doesn't appear to have happened either for various reasons. And on these issues that we're discussing now, Schultz has just felt like he's really been on the defensive, especially when it comes to military aid, which he is very reluctant to provide in a robust way. Germany has sent some aid to Ukraine over the past few months, but certainly not what the Ukrainians expect and not what one would think the largest country and richest country in Europe should be doing under these circumstances. My own view, as we wrote this week, is that this is really about gas. And I think that the oil embargo that was agreed this week from a German perspective is also linked to the question of a, a natural gas embargo. And this is something that the Ukrainians really want. There's pressure from some corners of Europe to do this. The Germans do not want to do it. They are the largest users of Russian natural gas in Europe, extremely dependent on it for industry and other purposes. And I think that the oil embargo is a way for the Germans to say in a few months, look, we did the oil embargo, but we're not going to go further and impose a ban on Russian gas because that would just be much too damaging. And I think that's also the reason that we've seen this kind of foot dragging and real reluctance to send, in particular, decommissioned German tanks. Again, this is something that we've written extensively about over the past week. And the Germans just seem to be tying themselves, to use a German metaphor, into pretzels to avoid sending uh, German-made tanks to Ukraine. And this week it turned out that they were going to send old German tanks to Greece so that the Greeks could then send even older Soviet-era tanks to Ukraine. And the problem with this whole structure is that Ukraine initially wanted to buy these German tanks that... Greece is now apparently acquiring. So it just shows how how worried the Germans are about provoking the Russians, in my view, into using gas against them as a strategic weapon, as it were. And we've already seen this again this week with the Russians cutting off the Dutch and Denmark because they've refused to pay for the, the Russian gas now in rubles. So this is this is definitely a threat. Mm. David, where do you think we go from here now? Because this package did prove much more difficult than the previous uh, rounds of sanctions that uh, have been prepared by the European Commission and then fairly swiftly signed off by member countries. There has been some talk of gas and already some pushback on that. 
Where does the EU go from here? Does the Commission learn any lessons from how difficult this particular package was? Well, as all this was coming together in the European Council summit yesterday, Eurostat was announcing record inflation at 8.1%. There's not going to be much appetite to do more sanctions in the energy sector that will drive prices up even further. So while there's appetite among some EU member countries certainly to get tougher, I think what we'll hear is folks reminding everyone that actually oil is the bigger revenue producer for Russia. This was the big step, that gas, symbolic as it is, may not be necessary. And anyway, the level of support that Europe is providing for Ukraine is going to look increasingly unsustainable. So one issue that I was challenging some of the leaders on uh, throughout this summit was, where does this go from here? Because at the moment, Ukraine is entirely dependent on the West for financing. The economy would collapse without economic aid from outside partners. It is entirely dependent on the West for weapons to keep the war going. Without those weapons, the country is conquered. So where do they and when do they confront the really tough choice, which is they either have to get into this war or they may have to cut off aid to Ukraine. It's going to be a very excruciatingly difficult conversation that they will face. Whether that will happen in June seems unlikely, but certainly by the fall, folks will start to talk about this because there's no sign that in fact Russia or Ukraine can tip this war really too far one way or the other. I would just push back on on that narrative slightly because I think that this whole idea that oil is more important, I mean, it is very important because Putin can earn a lot more money off of oil than gas. Clearly, the problem with this embargo, though, is that he's just going to turn around and sell this oil elsewhere, as everybody knows. He might not get as much for it, but he's still going to get a lot of money for it. And given where oil prices are now, he's already enjoying windfall profits from this oil. And that is why I think you know, strategically for him, the gas is so important, not because of the revenue only, but also because it gives him a lot of leverage over the Germans in particular, as we've seen. And if you take that off the table, then he doesn't have as much of a club that he can use against the West. Yeah, that's for sure. Lily, where do you see the Central and Eastern European countries going here? I mean, Viktor Orban in some ways is very out of step with his neighbours. In fact, the rest of that region have been the ones pushing hardest for more sanctions What do they want as the countries that are closest to Ukraine and to Russia? I think overall, a lot of the countries in the region, of course, want to be tougher. But I think that on the details, there are growing divisions within the region as well. There is the camp of the Baltic states in Poland. They're always the the toughest. They want to go the fastest. But I think that in in Central Europe, uh, we have varying shades and I think that on issues like gas, we will see more divisions than we have on previous issues. I did ask one prime minister from the region whether we can expect gas to be the the next big thing. And he really avoided giving me a straight answer with, you know, a long-winded answer about how Europe is now working to wean off its dependency with its new repower EU plans. But I took that as a sign that, you know, nothing is going to come uh, very quickly. The one thing um, I do want to note is that Hungary is becoming more and more isolated within the region. Uh, So for years, we've seen the group of the Visegrad Four, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic kind of 
floating a bit. You know, sometimes they'd be close on some issues, uh, further apart on others. But now I think the Polish-Hungarian alliance has really, really weakened Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has really hit that friendship hard. Mm, interesting. And so many of these issues all to be continued at the summit table in a few weeks, because this was an extraordinary EU summit. We have the regular one in just a few weeks later this month in June, where Ukraine once again will be front and centre. Perhaps we won't be talking about sanctions, but we will be talking about the potential of giving Ukraine a candidate status as an EU member. So we'll come back to that, nearer to that summit, but it's definitely one to watch. But we'll leave it there for now. Lily, David, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break in a moment, but do stay with us to learn more about the EU's ghostwriters, the lawyers around Europe who took on cases with the aim of making the European Union a legal reality. Tommaso Pavoni, the man who literally wrote the book on the ghostwriters, is coming next. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, we like a challenge on this podcast, so we're going to try to summarise a book based on seven years of research and some 300 interviews in less than 15 minutes. The book is The Ghostwriters, Lawyers and the Politics Behind the Judicial Construction of Europe, and it's by Tommaso Pavone. I'm Italian, I'm European. I was born in Rome and raised in Milan and Brussels before I moved to the United States with my family. And as a kid growing up in Brussels, I didn't really know much about the EU or perceive its meaning. It wasn't until I went to college in the United States at the University of Michigan that I began to get interested in the European Union. Pavoni is now Assistant Professor of Law and Politics in the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. And he's also a visiting researcher at the Arena Centre for European Studies at the University of Oslo. And his book tells the story of the building of the European Union, not in the way we're used to hearing it, with stories of founding fathers and treaties and grand ceremonies in capital cities. This is a story about lawyers out of the public eye across Europe, who he calls the ghostwriters. So I started by asking Pavoni to explain exactly who they are and where. So the ghostwriters in my book are what starts off as a a ragtag team of 
entrepreneurial and fairly mischievous lawyers across the EU's founding member states. I focus in particular on Italy, France, and Germany. And these are lawyers who were committed to the project of European integration. They had survived the Second World War, and they wanted to participate in its construction. And they did it by mobilizing European law before national courts in order to promote policy changes and institutional changes. So they did it in ways that made it seem like the pioneers of this process were these Europeanist litigants and activist judges, but they were actually the choreographers behind the scenes of these lawsuits. So they were helping to create a European legal order by taking cases to court and encouraging those cases to be brought to a European level, right, to establish a kind of European legal order. Would that be a fair summary? That's exactly right. And here I think we have to keep in mind that even though the European Union now governs this huge transnational space of half a billion citizens across 27 member states, the EU doesn't have a supranational army. It has a really tiny bureaucracy. It has minimal taxation authority. So the way the EU governs through and through is through law and through a transnational judiciary, through national judges applying European law in the cases before them and collaborating with the sort of Supreme Court of the EU, the European Court of Justice, by referring cases to it when there's a conflict between national law and European law. And so what these lawyers were doing is creating test cases and pushing judges to apply European law by soliciting the European Court of Justice. Right. And maybe explain how what the kind of general narrative around how that was built was and how yours cuts against that, at least to an extent. So the conventional narrative that has been embraced by lawyers, by political scientists, and sometimes even by populist critics of the European Union is that national judges turn to European law and the European Court of Justice to bolster their own power. And the core argument of my book is that this narrative actually masks as much as it reveals, that the EU is not actually this cradle of judicial activism, and that in fact, national judges broadly resisted empowering themselves with European law. And the reason they resisted empowering themselves with European law historically is because they had a ton of work. They were constrained by excessive workloads. They had lackluster legal training in European law, and they were subject to various careerist pressures of their judicial hierarchies that bred a sort of conformism and a reluctance to challenge national law and Supreme Court decisions via European law. So the catalyst of change were not these innately activist judges seeking to bolster their own power, but this group of what I call Euro lawyers who faced fewer bureaucratic constraints. So what these Euro lawyers did is they studied European law, they identified national laws or Supreme Court decisions that conflicted with European law, and then they sort of networked with, you know, civic associations, in order to identify clients willing to sort of trigger a dispute that would reveal this conflict between national or European law, and which would then give them an opportunity to go before one of these national judges and solicit a referral to the European Court of Justice. And they didn't just stop there. They didn't just ask national courts to refer cases to the European Court of Justice, because most national judges didn't know how to do this. 
they sometimes didn't even know where the European Court of Justice was located, right? And so they would ghostwrite the referrals to the European Court of Justice that the judges would then copy and paste. And they would tell them how to, you know, put it in an envelope, send it straight to Luxembourg. You don't have to go through your Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So they were really, in some sense, holding the judges by the hand in order to habituate them to apply this unfamiliar set of European rules and solicit this faraway European court in Luxembourg. We'll get on, I think, to the rights and wrongs of that, which, of course, you know, to a certain extent, that's subjective in a moment. But I wondered, I think it might be good for our listeners to just uh, look at a specific case of this. I'd like to give you an example relating to football, uh, because I think some of your listeners might be quite interested um, in this. This was a lawsuit from 1976 that enabled the European Court of Justice to establish the free movement of professional athletes in the European community. And this sparked a veritable revolution in European sports. And it turns out that this was a lawsuit ghostwritten by one of these entrepreneurial first-generation Euro lawyers. Her name was Vilma Viscardini, and she was a trailblazer in more ways than one. She was the first woman admitted to practice law in the small northern Italian town of Rovigo, uh, her hometown. And she fell in love with a man named Gaetano Donat, who was active in the European Federalist Movement. And in the early 1960s, they moved to Brussels to work in the European Commission. And it was there that Viscardini recalls feeling like she lived in the Brussels bubble. Nobody back home was remotely aware of the European Commission, the European Union, at the time, the European community. And so in the early 1970s, she moves back in her hometown in Rovigo and opens a law firm. She begins going to schools and civic associations to talk about the EU, but people look at her funny like she's recounting fairy tales. So she decides to construct a test case that would demonstrate the far-reaching impact that European law could have on people's lives. And she zeroes in on the one thing that all Europeans care about, especially Italians, which is football. So she knew that most European states, including Italy, required that you be a national of that state in order to play in one of its football clubs. And she was convinced that this violated European rules, protecting the free movement of workers against national discrimination. After all, aren't professional football players workers? They're employed. So she reached out to a friend named Mario Mantero, who was the ex-president of Rovigo's football club, and she constructed a test case as follows. Mr. Mantero would task her husband, Mr. Dona, who still worked in Brussels, with publishing a recruitment ad for football players in a Belgian sports magazine. So come play for us in Sunny Rovigo, the ad said. And Mr. Dona would then ask to be reimbursed for the expense of publishing this ad. And Mr. Mantero would refuse. He would say, Mr. Dona, you've acted prematurely. Don't you know that Italian law forbids me from even considering to hire foreign football players? No reimbursement for you. And then Mr. Donai, in righteous indignation, would turn to his wife, Miss Viscardini, and sue before the local justice of the peace, who happened to be another family friend and practicing lawyer. And then Viscardini provided the justice with a crash course in European law and a full copy of the judicial order of referral to the European Court of Justice. So this was a great example of this repertoire of ghostwriting. Right. It would break through to a wider kind of public, right? 
So this does bring us on to the ethics, you know, and often when the word ghostwriting is used, I mean, it's not exactly a positive term. It, it applies there's somebody behind the scenes who is directing things and it's not transparent. Um, as you have researched this over the years, how do you view this in kind of ethical terms and, and how do the people that you've interviewed um, see it in terms of, you know, the rights and wrongs of it? There's a professional ethics element of this. Um, and then there's just a broader question of, you know, how normatively desirable this action was. The professional ethics of it was that, you know, in several bar associations across European member states, especially in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there were rules against the solicitation of clients. There were rules against assisting both parties in a dispute. So in other words, lawyers could be subject to disbarment potentially if it came to light that they were constructing test cases. If we sort of look at a broader question of ethics, it turns out that most national judges would probably not have turned to European law and applied it against conflicting national legislation without this kind of prodding from lawyers. Up until you know the last decade, most national judges had received no training in European law. And so if we sort of see a positive in this process of, you know, cultivating the European legal rights, the transnational legal rights of citizens and civic associations, the role of these Euro lawyers in catalyzing that process was absolutely indispensable. And in its most noble moments, Euro lawyering was not about professional aggrandizement. It wasn't about, you know, becoming rich. It was about interlinking local civil society with European institutions through a transmission belt that was supplied by national courts. So it was in some sense about giving civil society and individual citizens a voice in European policymaking through the litigation process. And is this practice still going on? And has it changed over the years? I get the sense from your book that, as you've outlined, uh, sometimes these were, in the early years, very idealistic people. I get the sense now that perhaps often this is more people acting for corporations, which raises some concerns of it, of its own uh, in terms of just an imbalance of power. How do you see it having changed over the years and how is it kind of likely to evolve as far as you can see? So that's absolutely right. So in the 1960s and 1970s, these Euro lawyers were solo practitioners or working with you know a partner or two in small boutique firms. They were ardently committed to European integration, but they invented this repertoire of strategic litigation that over time could be appropriated and co-opted by a rising network of large corporate law firms. And in the 1960s and 1970s, corporate law or big law was largely absent in Europe. But as British and American law firms start knocking on the door of the European legal services market, they sort of chip away at these restrictions and you start to see this burgeoning network of corporate law firms. And so if you wanted to identify a Euro lawyer today, all you'd have to do is go to the offices of a big law firm and you'd find a trove of specialist lawyers focusing particularly on European economic law, like competition law, copyright law, taxation law. And so what this has done is it's created a corporate ecology of Euro lawyering. Maybe let's end on a slightly more 
positive note because this is something you also touch on. I mean, Europe is facing something of a rule of law crisis, at least in some countries at the moment. We're all aware of uh, the issues with Hungary and with Poland. Uh, do you see a role in these uh, for these kind of ghostwriters, uh, euro lawyers in in addressing this crisis and, and perhaps helping to resolve it? So one of the tells that this transnational judiciary is what undergirds the European Union's authority is the fact that these wannabe authoritarians like Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban or the leader of the Polish Law and Justice Party, Jaroslav Kaczynski, the first thing they do is they target the courts, right? They try to co-opt their national judiciaries and sever this transmission belt that could punt cases to the European Court of Justice and so my hope is that the rule of law crisis provokes euro lawyers to sort of rekindle this spirit of the judicial construction of Europe as a rule of law project, as a liberal project to unite European states through law um, and to join this sort of fight to defend those values against the autocratic efforts of some national governments. Okay, Tommaso, that was great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you have your podcast app open, we'd appreciate if you'd take a minute to leave us a rating by clicking some stars or even write a review. It helps others to find the podcast and generally makes us feel a little better. Well, depending on the review. You can also get in touch with us directly by emailing podcast at politico.eu. We do try to respond to everyone. We normally get round to everyone, even if it takes us a little while. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our new podcast intern, Namratha Prasad, and as always to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 